So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, is where we'll be. While you turn there, by a show of hands, who has seen a Tesla? A car, the car Tesla. So almost everybody in here. Well, then you're probably familiar with this car and the engineering feat that it is. The Tesla, since the creation of the automobile, is one of the greatest engineering feats we've ever seen in the industry. It's, uh, it's completely electric, but it can go from zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. It's unbelievably powerful. It even has an autopilot mode, which uses a 360-degree sonar, combined with a radar, combined with cameras, which is both awesome and terrifying. I don't know exactly how that works. It's amazing. You may have even been freaked out if you're walking down Colorado and all of a sudden this gorgeous machine is by you and you'd even hear it because it's so quiet. It just zooms up on you. So amazingly powerful, amazingly efficient, amazingly gorgeous. Now by a show of hands, who has actually driven a Tesla in this place? All right, one guy, there he is. You did it, man. So we know a lot about it, we like to admire it, but most of us haven't actually driven it. Well, if we're honest, I would say a lot of us would would agree that's kind of how we treat the gospel sometimes. We love to talk about it, right? We're part of the gospel-centered movement, and so we love talking about the gospel. We love researching the gospel, talking about its features, talking about its beauty, talking about how efficient it is. But at the end of the day, are we actually driving the gospel Are we actually using the gospel in our lives? Because if you're like me, you were raised in the church and you thought the gospel was the truth that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, which it absolutely is, but that's not the end of the story. Jesus also rose from the dead, has given us his Holy Spirit, which is our power in life to forgive, to love, to combat sin. And so is the gospel in our lives, like a Tesla that we have sitting in our garage, wondering how we're going to get somewhere while admiring this thing, Or do we actually get in and drive it? And today, Paul is going to call us to actually get in and drive the gospel, to pull it out of the clouds and actually put it into action. If you are visiting this morning, at the beginning of the year, we started a series in the book of 2 Corinthians that will take us through the entirety of the year. And to kind of catch you up to speed, here's what we've learned so far. The apostle Paul planted a church in Corinth— But after he left, he stayed there for 18 months. After he left, new teachers had come in and started to to undermine not only the, the true gospel, the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, but they had started to malign and attack him personally. But though they had caused him great pain, we've seen in this letter so far that Paul's overwhelming desire for them is that they would receive comfort and joy in the gospel, and in knowing that their pastor cares for them deeply. And as it stands today, Paul now turns his attention to a specific person in the church who had caused some great dissension. Now, we don't know exactly who this person is. Most ancient commentators thought it was the guy from 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his stepmom. We now, most commentators actually don't believe that anymore. They think it's probably one of the leaders of the new faction based on some of the language and some of the um, circumstance, but that's neither here nor there. The reality is there is someone who had caused a great dissension. Now, the pro-Paul team had rallied against this person, probably demonstrated some sort of church discipline towards them, and now Paul is having to call them back to offer forgiveness. And so we see two interesting things happening in the Corinthian church, which also happens in our own lives, in our response to wrongdoing or sin. In his first letter, he had to rebuke the church for being far too cavalier 
with sin. Like he actually had to tell them, like, this is not okay that this is happening. As we had mentioned before, it's not okay that you're getting drunk at communion. Can we agree on this? Like they've seemed oblivious to this fact. And so he had to tell them to remove the offender from the fellowship so it wouldn't be toxic in the church. And ultimately, so that person could be saved. So he, he practiced church discipline. Now, I realize that term is nuclear in our day and age. We hate the idea of church discipline. Sometimes uh, we are right in thinking that because there has been great abuse of power. But the reality is we all know that it's necessary sometimes, even in our own network Last year, we saw church discipline take place when Mark Driscoll was uh, expelled from the network because of unrepentant sin. And even the most liberal people I know who would self-acknowledgedly say that they're liberal loved that move, like agreed that that needed to take place. That was a good thing to happen. And so on the one hand, we'd like to talk about being super tolerant, but the moment we agree something is really wrong, we want action to happen uh, for the safety of the church and for the glory of Christ. And now here it seems that they are falling off the other side of the wagon. So Paul had to tell them, this is not okay what's happening. And now he's having to say, this person is repentant and needs to come back into the fellowship. Because whenever there is discipline or whatever you want to call it, the ultimate goal is always reconciliation. Alan Jones, the Dean of Grace Episcopal Cathedral in San Francisco, summed up the ironic response of the Corinthians well. When he said this, he said, We live in an age in which everything is permitted, but nothing is forgiven. We live in an age when everything is, bege- uh, um, everything is permitted. We love the flag of tolerance. But the moment there's a personal offense, nothing is then forgiven. And that helps explain what's been going on in the church in Corinth. So I have three points for us today from the text, which are essential for us to grasp in order to grow in grace and forgiveness as a church at Prism. The first one is this. We need a gospel view of forgiveness, a gospel view of what forgiveness is. Uh, Verses five says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, But to all of you, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The first thing that is keenly striking here is Paul's self-forgetfulness. His ability to step outside of himself as it concerns this situation we know that he wasn't emotionally attached from the church. Just the verse before he said, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. So Paul had been affected by what's going on here. But as it stands now, he is able to see the bigger picture and to step outside of his emotions. Because the gospel had freed him to realize his feelings, though valid, aren't the center of the universe. So that's why he says, don't, don't worry about me now. Tim Keller said it well in his really small and really helpful book called uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He said, the thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility, and I'll catch this, is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. 
So the key to truly being humble isn't being self-deprecating. Sorry, Chuck, I know that's your uh, go-to. But it's actually thinking less about ourselves. It's actually thinking more of those around us. And that is what Paul is essentially saying. Yeah, I've been hurt, but it's not ultimately about me. And it's not even ultimately about you. Ultimately, it's about the reconciliation that can take place here in this person's life. This is the whole reason Jesus came, to bring reconciliation to us. And so in the church, there was an opportunity for them to display the gospel in this situation, but they were withholding it. And so Paul has to essentially shake them and say, it's not about us. There is a chance here for reconciliation. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 15. This is stunning. He says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who turns to repent. So the moment someone has a penitent heart and wants back into the fellowship, the heavenly host breaks into celebration. Shouldn't we also? This is the great drama that we've been called to. This is the reality of the spiritual realm. But how often do I refuse to rejoice with them? Now, once again, it's important to see that when a real offense has taken place, the call is not just to try to quickly smooth things over and act like everything is fine. Paul had no problem practicing church discipline, as we said, when there was continual unrepentant sin. But reconciliation is always the goal. But the problem comes when we feel like we've been so hurt that the person who has offended us hasn't actually suffered enough yet. So our attitude becomes punitive towards them. They must pay. How quickly I am to try, can be to try to usurp God's throne of judgment and say, Lord, I, I know that you say they're forgiven, but I don't think they've actually experienced enough pain. I don't think they actually understand deep enough the anguish they have caused me. So let's just keep them on the outside for a bit longer until I decide when I'm ready to give them my forgiveness. How often do we do that? Have you been there? Maybe this morning as I'm talking, that person comes to your mind right now who if you hear their name, you cringe. You know who I'm talking about. Several years back, I was harboring some deep unforgiveness, as I mentioned before, and I had a, a dear Christian friend of mine who was far wiser than me listen to me rage about this person for weeks. And finally, at one point, they calmly and lovingly said to me, you do realize that if you were held to the standard that you were holding them to, you would be crushed. You would be crushed if you held yourself to the standard that you're holding them to. And they were absolutely right. I was so angry that this person hadn't scaled a Mount Everest of righteousness yet while I'm still hanging out at the base camp. How often do we do this? The truth is, I was the one who really needed to be forgiven in that situation if we were keeping score. But that's the reason we don't keep score, right? Do you know who wins when we keep score? Nobody wins. We're all losers. You're welcome. <laughs> Romans 3 says, There is none who seek God. 
No one is righteous, not even one. That's the point of the gospel. That's why the gospel means good news. Because we're not righteous. The gospel is the great leveler of all of us. Nobody can snub their, th- their nose at the uh, foot of the cross towards anybody. Because the gospel flattens all of us. That's the point of it. That's why it's good news. So we don't keep score. We allow God to keep score. And he has. Through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're on the cross. All of our unrighteousness was put on Christ. And his righteousness was imputed to all of us. That's the gospel, friends. This is what it means to have a gospel view of forgiveness. It's recognizing how much we have been forgiven, which makes it extremely difficult to withhold grace from someone else. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable. And if, if, if you weren't raised in the church, uh, the, a parable is just a, a short story that's meant to expound upon a greater truth. So we don't take every detail literally, but we're looking for the big picture in this story. He says this, Then Peter, who was one of his friends, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's millions of dollars in our money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That is a tiny fraction of what he owed the king. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart's. These are serious words from Jesus. Jesus takes forgiveness very seriously because the cost was very great. The Son of God had to be crucified in order for us to be able to forgive each other. And so, of course, he takes it seriously. Now, of course, this is not easy and doesn't mean that we do it perfectly, but we really do have to ask ourselves today, friends. I have to ask myself, is this the paradigm that we really do try to work from? If we asked our friends and family, would they affirm that, yes, they're not perfect, but they really do try to have this gospel view of forgiveness? Secondly, the text teaches that we must have a gospel vision for the offender. Verse 8, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, 
I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. Catch that language. I beg you to reaffirm your love for them. And I'm surely the Corinthians, upon receiving this, would have said, but Paul, don't you know who we're talking about here? Don't you know the acidic things he has said about you and the way that he has undermined our mission here? And Paul would have said, I know exactly who you're talking about. And I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So what do I mean by a gospel vision for the offender? Well, it might be helpful to draw this out by asking ourselves a question. When someone has caused you pain, does that change the vision that you have for them as a person, as an image bearer of God, as one whom Jesus died to save? Or do you just write them off completely and even months or years later, once again, cringe when you hear their name? You know what I'm talking about. This often happens at the end of, of dating relationships. That person you were so close to for so long, now the relationship is severed, and now you can't stand them and have no desire to even uh, have a vision for their life that is outside of you. This is what we're talking about, having a gospel vision for somebody who has offended you. But when we have a gospel vision, for, we are able to see them through the lens of grace. We can take a step back, Understand the bigger story that we are all part of. Understand that what is happening here is bigger than that relationship, though painful that it is. I know with this Valentine's Day weekend, that can stir up a lot of sorrow and, and bitterness. I do realize that this feels impossible at times. For me, it often feels very impossible. I feel like the biggest hypocrite in the world standing here this morning talking about this. But the good news is, and this won't sound like good news at first, but it is, it's, it is impossible for us to do. It is impossible. We need literally a miracle from God in our own strength, in our own feelings. We can't do this, friends. But God has performed this miracle. Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. And then catch this. This is the good news. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When he saved you, friends, he gave you his Holy Spirit that now empowers your will to love people with the love of God himself. We can't conjure up what we need. We need a miracle from God to come through the Holy Spirit, give us fresh love, fresh grace for the person who has hurt us. But it isn't easy. Yes, the Holy Spirit has empowered our wills, but we must act. So this is why Paul is begging them to affirm their love for them. You don't have to beg somebody to do something that's easy, right? It's not easy. It's very difficult. But even more is going on here um, than meets the eye in our English translation. In one of the commentaries I was reading this week, he pulled out a, a really interesting thing. Look at the text again. It says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now, surely Paul, as their pastor, wants them to feel loving towards this person, but that's not necessarily what it's saying. The literal Greek translation of that would be, I beg you to reaffirm love for them. So Paul is talking about something that is far bigger than a temporary feeling. This person is loved by God as much as you are loved by God, based solely on the merits of Jesus Christ. And so no matter how we feel— we can affirm this fact about them, 
Reaffirm your love for them. God is no fool. He is not going to let forgiveness and restoration in his church be solely contingent upon our fallen and fickable, fickable, fallible and fickle, just fickable, we'll go with that, uh, feelings. He's not going to leave it ultimately up to us. God is no fool. He knows how frail we are. Jesus himself said this body, uh, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Instead, he pours out his love through us. And his love will never fail, friends. So even when we feel too weak or too hurt to forgive, God's love is a rock that we can stand on. And so, yes, we can reaffirm love for somebody, even if we can't conjure up a feeling. And this is what Paul, as their pastor, is begging them to do. Reaffirm love for them. I don't want them to be overwhelmed. They're one of us. Bring them back in. So once again, the question today is simple. When someone hurts us, are we able to see outside of our pain to the horizon of God's redemptive purposes in his church, in your life, in my life? This is what Paul is doing here. Don't worry about me. Don't even worry about yourself. Restore the brother. And he demonstrates a gospel vision for the Corinthians all throughout this book. In just the first chapter alone, check out some of the language we've already seen. Verse 6, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Verse 7, our hope for you is unshaken. Verse 15, I wanted to come to you so that you might have a second experience of grace. Remember that this church had hurt him. Verse 24, we work with you for your joy. And then just last week, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Are we able to say this to people who have hurt us as a church? And sometimes we are the person who needs to extend forgiveness, but sometimes we are the person who has fled forgiveness, who needs to actually go back and receive it. We might even know in the circumstance that it's there being offered, but because of an not wanting to have an awkward conversation, we have abandoned the entire relationship, right? Have you done this? Sometimes we need to go receive the forgiveness. Just this week, I'm learning that this is one of the blessings or curses of being called to preach, depending on on how you look at it. When you're studying the text, you think you're reading it, and then all of a sudden it turns on you, and it starts reading you. And that's what happened to me this week. I was uh, working on this verse right here, and somebody came to my mind, that uh, a friend of mine that, I I needed to make right by. And so I took a breath and I put aside my laptop and I picked up my phone and I made a call and I asked for their forgiveness. I said, I'm working on this sermon and I can't preach it unless I make this call. So will you forgive me? And we had about an hour long conversation and they graciously did extend forgiveness to me. And I don't obviously say this as an example of how wonderful I am. I say it to show you that I am hashing this out in real time alongside of all of you friends. We are totally in this together. They don't give the guy a pulpit because he's an expert. That is for sure. So that's right, Chuck. (laughs) So maybe there is someone today that you need to reach out to. Right after the service, you need to make the call. They're in your mind right now. What you don't need to do is check Facebook right after the church service. You do realize that's a tactic of the enemy, right? Distraction. So right now, Commit in your heart that you will go reaffirm love for somebody or you will put yourself in a situation to receive that forgiveness. These are serious things, friends. 
So we have seen that we need, first, a gospel view of forgiveness. Secondly, we need a gospel vision for the offender, one that looks outside of the circumstances to their soul. And last, we need a greater vigilance against our foe. After instructing them to forgive, Paul rounds out his thought by saying this, verse 11, so that, you need to forgive them, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Friends, uh, you do realize we do have a real foe, right? Like, Satan is, is real, and he hates God, he hates you, he hates Prism Church, he hates your marriage, he hates your friendships. Increasingly, since what has been called the Enlightenment, which in the final analysis will be seen as the most ironic name ever to a time period, the belief in an actual, literal enemy of God and humanity has been seen as, oh, that's just so sweet that you still believe in that. Oh, you still believe in your fairy tales? That's, that's the mindset that culture has towards that because we are so enlightened now. And uh, tragically, that's increasingly crept into the church. Many don't like believing in a literal devil or a literal Satan. And I think one of the reasons why is because things get real when you actually believe that Satan exists. If you don't believe Satan exists, it's easy just to see Jesus as the best of the self-help gurus who's here to make your life a little better, who really is just for your comfort. And so even if you do believe in the devil, you don't want to talk about it, or especially not hell, because things get real when you do that. The, The moment you actually acknowledge that there is a real evil adversary in your life, that smokescreen vanishes like that. So if we would make sense that Satan, our real enemy who actually exists, is greatly motivated to keep closing our modern minds to the spiritual battle. Now consider some of the things that Jesus himself had to say against Satan. I'm going to draw only from Luke because even skeptics who don't believe in any of this at all usually respect Dr. Luke some. So looking strictly from Luke, listen to the words of Jesus. Luke 10, 18. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Hours before Peter's betrayal, Jesus said this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. In Luke 8, Jesus is telling another parable called the parable of the sower. And he's talking about what happens when the gospel is preached in the different people's hearts it falls on. Listen to this one. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. If you get rid of Satan, you get rid of Jesus. It's just as simple as that. You simply can't be a Bible-believing Christian and not affirm the existence of an actual enemy of God and humanity. Jesus himself said, Satan is real. I saw him fall like lightning from the sky. He is here right now trying to steal the word from our hearts. I'm telling you, friends, distraction is just not the result of technology. Distraction is the result of the spiritual battle that's happening right now in our culture. That keeps us from doing serious work because of trivialities. So Paul today calls us to a wartime vigilance. Our enemy is real, and one of his tactics is to undermine the church by fanning into flame unforgiveness. And this makes sense, though, right? Because the quickest way to tarnish the work of Christ is to do violence to the gospel. When we refuse to give, we are essentially saying in that moment, I don't believe that Jesus really took care 
of this sin and pain. It's not all finished. And so I'm going to see to it to make up for what was lacking on the cross. This is unforgiveness, friends. This is bitterness. So of course, our literal enemy is going to use that as one of his tactics. And the text could not be clearer today. You don't want to be outwitted by Satan. Right right now, there is a spiritual war. And we have an enemy who's trying to outwit us. And Paul helpfully says, because we are not ignorant of his schemes, we know that one of them is unforgiveness. So the question isn't whether there is a spiritual battle raging. That has already been answered by Jesus. Yes, there absolutely is. The question is, are we going to fight? It's not for nothing that Jesus, when he taught us to pray, said, deliver us from the evil one. So at prison church, will we be outwitted? I suggest that together we fight the good fight of faith, that we extend forgiveness even today. Once again, that might mean making a phone call or a text to that person whose face came into your mind during this sermon. Friends, don't be outwitted by Satan. This moment is the moment of decision. By way of conclusion, I'd like to do so by sharing one of the most poignant stories of forgiveness that I have ever read in my life. Um, some of you may be familiar with Corey Tenboom. She's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. Um, she, her and her family were harboring Jews during World War II, and they were caught and arrested, and her brother and her sister, uh, Betsy, died in the concentration camp. And she recalls an experience where she came face to face years later with one of her captors. So bear with me. It's a bit of a longer text, but I think it will do good to us. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat. A brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeat a Germany with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed to hear most in that bitter, bombed-out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Maybe because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that where, God, where forgiven sins were thrown, excuse me, that the sea is where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence. In silence, collected their wraps. In silence, left the room. And that's when I saw him. Working his way forward against the others, one moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next... A blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights. The pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor. The shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me. Ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp and where we were sent. And now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, madam. How good it is to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. 
He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But I would like to hear it from your lips as well, madam. Again, that hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven. And I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours had wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus said, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and to rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart's. Help, I prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all of my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. So, Father in heaven, we need miracles to happen in this church. I need miracles to happen in my heart, Lord. Yes, Lord, you have commanded us to forgive, but you have also told us that you will be the one who supplies the love. You will be our comforter and our helper. Father, we are not unaware of the spiritual battle raging in our church, in our city at this moment. That he would like to do violence to Prism Church by causing roots of bitterness to spring up in our hearts. Father, I pray that you would come this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, your light would shine into all the shadows in this chapel. That you would give us courage and you would give us patience and you would give us grace to extend love, to extend our hands, to step outside of our feelings and to see the horizon of your redemption, Lord. But as Paul said in the first letter, these things are spiritually discerned, Lord, so we are totally at your mercy. We need you to come, even now, for the glory of Christ.